Father, we've been blessed already. It's good to come to the house of the Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask that you move our hearts closer to Jesus, that you touch them through the power of your word, that we'd hear your voice speaking to us. We ask for this miracle, that we would come to love you more deeply as we recognize the infinite, fathomless, fathomless love that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It's a special weekend. We get to celebrate Independence Day. You know, I haven't always grasped what Independence Day is all about. You know, you go through it in history classes, and then you begin to kind of forget about the history that is involved there. How many of you know who this character is? Anybody know who that is? That's King George III. He gets a whole lot of credit, did you know, for the 4th of July that we celebrate from 1776. Credit might not be the right word, um, but the Declaration of Independence that was signed that we celebrate on the 4th of July, it had a lot to say about this guy. You know, we tend to focus on some of the other parts of the Declaration, but there was actually 27 points in the Declaration of, points is not a good word either, 27 grievances against the King of England. Here's just a few of them, kind of some highlights and summaries. Military abuses. He's got a standing military here in our country, and, and they don't stand trial like regular citizens, and they have too much power. They're mistreating us, even in times of peace. He controls the judges. He pays them. He appoints them. How in the world are we supposed to get a fair trial? He's obstructing the immigration of foreigners. They wanted more uh, people from other places besides Britain to be able to come to the United States, and he made that extremely difficult through the laws that he implemented imposing taxes, taxation that was unfair. And most recently, as we came to 1776, they said, you are waging war against us. How can we expect you to protect us when you are waging war against us? And then there's this line that summarizes all of these accusations against this monarch, this king. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Doesn't sound like a very friendly guy, huh? Doesn't sound like a guy that you want ruling over you. There's a lot of his accusations that were leveled at King George. And you know, it's fascinating because monarchy has been the dominant political system throughout history that people have organized themselves under ruling kings. And how often have those kings been good? I don't think you could ever pinpoint one that we have an accurate history of that was actually not a despot at one point or another in his life, that didn't practice tyranny. Absolute power has not done human beings well. And that's what we learned so far in Daniel chapter 7. I invite you to turn in your Bibles again to Daniel chapter 7. And we looked at how there's a different way to wield power. And we looked at these different beast kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7. And this is, we're going to fly through this because, again, the 
point of prophecy is to get us to know Jesus and to get us to lean upon him. And all of the details are to lead us to recognize that there is a gigantic battle going on between Satan and Jesus, between righteousness and sin, between love and selfishness. And we can boil it all down to those points. We can recognize that every detail of prophecy has to do with those things. Well, we had the lion who appeared with, with wings, and what did that represent? We're paralleling this to Daniel chapter 2. This represented Babylon, right? And then we had the bear that was raised up on one side with three ribs for the three nations that he'd conquered in conquering the world. And this represented the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we had the leopard with four heads. We didn't even talk about the fascinating thing that after Alexander the Great, who ruled in Greece, the leopard represents Greece, we come to the uh, four generals that were given authority after Alexander the Great. And then we had the nondescript beast that we chose to represent with a blood worm uh, that was devouring and trampling that represents the Roman Empire. And there's other places in Daniel that you can find references and parallels to get this repeat and enlarged picture that represents the first three are actually named by name in the book of Daniel. The fourth one, uh, Jesus references it when talking about the abomination of desolation as being Rome. So we're going to pick this up uh, as we recognize that, and remember what we learned last week, what was it, what were the three words? Does anybody remember the three words? What changed the scenario? We have these beasts that use human power to abuse people, to devour much flesh. Until, till, and but, until the court was seated, until the Ancient of Days came and took its place, until the Son of Man comes before the throne. And we talked about the Son of Man last week. Here it is again in brief, this parallels between the head of gold, the chest of silver, the bronze thighs, the the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And the point of this is that there is something different. There is a kingdom that is entirely different than all the powers that have ravaged the planet throughout human history. And that, that's incredibly good news, isn't it? Don't you want to see something different? Don't you want somebody to wield power a little bit differently than we've seen? So let's go to verse 24. In verse 24, we're picking up the interpretation. Daniel's confused and he keeps asking questions for further understanding of this vision. So we're going to dive into this a little bit more detail quickly, and then we're going to come to something so beautiful. I need you to stick with me to the end because I believe you will be, your mind is going to be blown, or at least my mind's going to be blown. It has been in studying this. So Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24 says this, the 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So we see that they come from out of Rome, these 10 kings, and another shall rise after them. So we have the divided Europe that we saw with the feet of iron and clay. The, The barbarian tribes came and they overthrew this incredibly massive kingdom of Rome. And they the, you know, you have the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, you have the Vandals, you have all these tribes that are overrunning, which many of them later become uh, European nations that we know today. But this is the focus that Daniel keeps coming back to. What's this little horn? What's, what's this little horn all about? Another shall rise after him. 
he shall be different from the first ones. There's something different about this horn that comes up from the other ten. And he shall subdue three kings. So we should expect that three of these tribes will be uprooted in the process of this one coming to prominence. So we have the little horn. So far we see there's different from other horns, subdues three kingdoms or kings in the process of coming to power. Then it goes on to say this, he shall speak pompous words, what is it? Against the Most High. You see, the the direction is not just in ravaging the planet, but there's a direction against God himself in the actions of this little horn power. He's going to speak pompous words against the Most High, or blasphemous words, some translations will say. And this harkens us back to second, or to what Paul later applies to the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The falling away comes first. This is talking about Christianity. It started off filled with the love of Christ, but something is going to go wrong, Paul predicts. Something's going to happen where, to the church. It says, the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And notice what he does. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Sometimes we read about the little horn and we think that this is simply speaking words to defame Christianity, for instance. But a greater deception than speaking out against the name of Jesus is to take the name of Jesus and to represent the name of Jesus with a character that is nothing like Jesus at all. That is what we call anti-Christ, a substitute Christ, a form of Christianity devoid of the power of God, devoid of the love of God. Now, here's an example of this. Um, A historian, Richard Cavendish, says this about something that took place in the Middle Ages. Pope Boniface VIII issued the papal bull, Unum Sanctum, the most famous papal document of the Middle Ages. And watch what the, the Christian church at large began to say about itself in the Middle Ages. Watch what it says. For with truth as our witness, it belongs to spiritual power to establish the terrestrial, being earthly power, and to pass judgment if it has not been good. Uh, Simple language, what's that saying? It belongs to the church, to the spiritual powers, to tell the secular powers what to do. Now, I don't entirely disagree with the fact that that the world could be a better place if we ran it upon principles of heaven, right? Obviously, as a citizen of the United States of America, I'm going to vote my conscience, and that conscience is going to be based upon the Word of God. So there will be spiritual considerations that are going to go into every part of my being a citizen. We saw Chaplain Barry Black, who's representing God at one of the highest levels of government. But there becomes a problem when the church says we need to control the state, when we need to get more power through the state. And this is what begins to happen. So around 303 uh, years after uh, AD, sorry, there's a lot of dates, so we're going to get through this fast. But 303 to 313 was the last persecution of Christianity 
by the Roman Empire under Diocletian. After that, you have, I believe it was the Edict of Milan, you begin to have Christianity favored, or at least established to have religious liberty. But then in around 320, you have um, Constantine coming in and him beginning to, like we talked about a few weeks ago, actually make Christianity the religion of the realm of Rome. And to actually say, we're going to conquer with the cross, that symbol of self-sacrificing love, a love that, that lays down its life for its enemies, became the symbol in which Rome would crush their enemies with violence. So does that happen in our world today? Do we desire for spiritual power to control the secular power? People voice this quite a bit. Pastors more often than government officials. But here's an example just within the past week and a half of a government official who said this. A U.S. representative, Lauren Boebert, said this. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. We have to be really careful of any considerations that... Get the state to be able to be controlled by the church. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, talking about that incredible sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, that Jesus gave. It says, Christ does not drive, but draws men unto him. The only compulsion which he employs is the constraint of love. When the church begins to seek for the support of secular power, it's tempting. When we can't get what we want done, when, when the world is falling down around us, when we're frustrated, what we want to do is start saying, okay, let's have some election booths in our lobby. Let's figure out how we can get all of our people as a voting block to vote for the right people to be in power, and we are going to use the church to control the state. But when the church begins to seek for the support of secular power, it is evident that she is devoid of the power of Christ, the constraint of divine love. It's a heart issue. What we need is hearts to change, and it has to start with my heart. Furthermore, we declare, uh, sorry, this is back to Unum Sanctum, that that famous uh, papal bull that Pope Boniface VIII had Furthermore, we declare, he said, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Do you see this grasping for power, this grasping for control? Jesus doesn't work like that. He works by attraction. He doesn't work by compelling force and coercion. So we see verse 25 continues, that shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Let's look at first that shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Here's a guy named John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton. You probably know him better as Lord Acton. And you actually know something that he said very well, but he was an English Catholic historian, politician, and writer uh, in the 1800s. And listen to what he said. This is a letter that he wrote as a Catholic historian. And to give you the background, he's evaluating how he should write Catholic history and how this archbishop should deal with Catholic history. And he's got an axe to grime with this archbishop. He's saying, look, when you are talking about these popes, when you're talking about these people, you're glossing it over. You know, here's a side note. 
If you've read the Old Testament lately and been like, what in the world? Why is that story here? David, I thought he was such a wonderful man. And and the Bible doesn't gloss over the details. And, And this is what he's getting at when he's talking to this archbishop. He says this, I mean the popes of the 13th and 14th century. These men instituted a system of persecution with a special tribunal and special laws. They carefully elaborated it and developed and applied it. They protected it with every sanction, spiritual and temporal. They inflicted as far as they could the penalties of death and damnation on everybody who resisted. Now remember, this is, this is a Catholic historian writing about Catholic history. Notice what he goes on to say. They constructed quite a new system of procedure with unheard of cruelties for its maintenance. He goes on to talk about the burning at the stake and the, the being stretched on the rack and all these different tortures that took place during the Inquisition. They devoted to it a whole code of legislation pursued for several generations. It is perfectly familiar to every Roman Catholic student initiated in canon law and papal affairs. There's no doubt about it that during these centuries, there was an abuse. Christianity was doing the persecuting. And You know, it came in, for what you might say, seemed like good reasons. You have the the Arians who don't believe that Jesus is fully God. That's a problem. So let's crush them. Let's get rid of them. Let's destroy them. That's where we we go too far. We, We should work via attraction. We should work via helping them see truth. There were various heresies that were coming into the church. And so what they decided to do is, well, let's torture people. Let's... Do whatever it takes to make sure that people believe the right thing. I want people to believe the right thing. I want them to believe in Jesus. But the methods matter. Power, he goes on to say, and this is where you know exactly what he says. Power tends to corrupt, but absolute, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a very familiar phrase to us. Is it true? It's, it looks true when you look at human history. Power does tend to corrupt. And absolute power, when you have a monarch, when you have the Holy Roman Empire, where now the church is able to say who gets to be the next king and gets to demand what that king will do and what his armies will do, and eventually marshals his own army in order to go in the crusades to crush the Muslims and to do various things like that for various reasons that may have seen on the outside as good. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. But there is one glaring exception. That is the most powerful man who ever walked the face of this planet. His name is Jesus. And he wielded power in an entirely different way. Force, the signs of the times, May 6, 1897, is the last resort of every false religion. Every false religion grasping for power finally lashes out with force. We've got to figure out how to control people. You see, the way that the world operates is based upon selfishness, self-promotion, coercion, control, force. You know, the, the, the pontiff of Rome became this position that was coveted and they were fighting for it and then you have nepotism, you have all these different things taking place in order to have this seat of power. And Jesus' own disciples 
Which of us is going to be the greatest, Master? This is the human nature. This is who we are inside. You see, the issue with the church in the dark ages is the issue of my heart today. Of all of our hearts. Because the inclination of humanity is towards selfishness, self-promotion, coercion, control, and force in our every relationship. So we see here that it persecutes the saints, But then it also goes on in verse 25 to say it intends to change times and law. Did we see that happen? We could look at Constantine. We could look at a lot of different things to describe that. But here's from uh, the St. Catherine Catholic Church Sentinel, May 21, that says this. Perhaps the boldest thing, this is coming from a Catholic publication, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happen in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. And you read various Catholic authors and historians who say, look, if you want to follow the Bible, you need to recognize you're following the Christian church and its traditions and what you're doing. Then it goes on to say, people who think that the scripture should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. You can tell that why that's one of my favorites. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I just like to, to hear them say it. So, and this isn't about an us versus them. This is about what's going on in my heart, in your heart, in the hearts of all of humanity. Two principles are working themselves out. We are either choosing the principle of righteousness or of sin, of love or of selfishness. So, at the beginning of the 28 fundamental beliefs, though, I do want you to know, it says this. You know, people might say, there's 28 things that are important to Seventh-day Adventists. Well, there's only one creed that Seventh-day Adventists have, and it is this. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as their only creed. You want to ask, somebody say, what does Seventh-day Adventists believe? We believe our one and only creed. You can make it real simple. It's the Bible. Stick with the Bible. That is what really matters. So this whole idea that this power could change times and laws. You know, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about it being a parent. As a parent, you kind of have to establish laws at home sometimes, or rules, you know? This is how the household's going to operate. And when you do that, you kind of have to think it through and, and realize that there's two ways to come up with things. One, I can come up with a list of rules that are entirely self-serving. And those rules are going to change based upon what I need. Or I can come up with a list of rules that is based upon what is best for my girls. And that is never going to change. There's principles that, that are eternal in nature that this is the way the universe operates. They're based upon love, which is what the, the law of God reveals. And I want to base what I instruct my kids around those unchangeable principles. I want them to know that when I ask them even to go clean up their room, it's not because dad's too lazy to go clean up the room. It's because I know that it's for their own good to experience the experience of cleaning up their room. <laughs> When I ask them to eat a specific thing, it's not so that dad can make sure that he gets the good stuff. It's because I want them to eat what's the most healthy thing for them. So what about with God? 
If, if God is someone who changes the rules at different times in history and, and makes it, this is the hoop you have to jump through right now to make me happy. And then later in history, well, there's this hoop that you need to jump through in order to make me happy. In order to satisfy me. Then we have a God who is selfish. Do you see why the enemy wants us to think that God would change his law? Because he wants us to think that he's arbitrary and that he's self-serving in the way that he governs. He wants us to think that he's like King George, but God is entirely different than that. Verse 25 continues, Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. God gives opportunity in history. This is what the great controversy is all about. For the principles of unrighteousness to be developed. So that we can see that sin and selfishness implodes on itself. And that we'll never want it again. That we'll either choose to implode with it or to never ever want it again in our lives. Tends to change times and laws and dominates for 1260 years. Where do I get the 1260 years from? Well, uh, for one thing, this time period appears multiple times. The times, times, and half a time representing three and a half years. It's also represented as 42 months and 1260 days, both in Revelation and Daniel. You find this time period being an important time period. And when you study history, and there's a lot to look into of how this connection between church and state was growing, you find that the Bishop of Rome began to have free and full authority around the time that Belisarius delivered Rome from the attack of the Arian Ostrogoth in 538 uh, AD. So if you take 538 and you go forward 1260 years, then you come to the place where the, the Pope is taken captive in 1798 by Napoleon and he is taken away from this opportunity to exercise control in the way that he was. All right, so a brief, quick summary of that part. But now we're getting to the goods. Are you ready? All right, this is the part that gets me super excited, right? So, but the court shall sit. Remember, we had three words. We had till, until, and this is the but. But the court shall be seated. All this madness is going to go on in history. People are going to wield power in the wrong way over and over and over, and it's going to repeat and repeat and enlarge. But the court will sit. The books will be open. God's judgment is transparent. And they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. You remember the judgment scene that we looked at last week. We saw the Ancient of Days with his white hair, his white robe, his throne that was fiery with fiery wheels and a stream of fire coming out to illustrate this beautiful purifying energy that God is in being loved. An unquenchable fire of love, God is. We saw that his glory, his law, it, and, and his love, and also his, he himself is described as fire in the Bible. But then he goes on to say this. And this is the part that I am still grappling with. Verse 27. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to Fill in the blank. Who's it going to be given to? You would expect that the next thing would come would be like is written in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. God has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things. 
through whom also he made the world. I would expect that Jesus is going to inherit a dominion that involves the entire universe, all of creation. I can understand that all things would be inherited by Jesus. But notice what this says. This is, but then the kingdom and dominion. The greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people. The saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. If you ever doubted whether God is self-serving, just look at Daniel chapter 7. He's going to give the kingdom away. He's going to receive a kingdom, and he's going to give it to everyone who wants to be a part of his self-sacrificing love throughout all eternity. Am I overemphasizing this? Just look in Daniel chapter 7 earlier on. Verse 18 says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Verse 22 again repeats it. So we see it three different times. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. You see, the church began to convince us that we needed to grovel our way because we were so despicable to God. Grovel our way, whether it's through penance or whether it's through paying enough money in order for him finally to accept us. But first he'll put us in purgatory and let us writhe in pain for just long enough and then just maybe he might let us into heaven. The picture of God is entirely different than that. And if you doubt it, look through the rest of the Bible for this concept. And we're just going to look at a few of these opportunities. Look at what it talks about with reigning with Christ. Revelation 21 and verse 7, talking about that inheritance of all things, says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And when I read that, it's like all things, you know, I I tend to diminish that compared to the all things of Hebrews chapter 1 that is for Christ. (laughs) Is that what it's talking about? Something smaller? 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. We shall also reign with him. Are you ready to reign? To be a part of the government of the universe? Revelation 3 verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Are you ready to sit on the throne of the universe? No, you're not. Neither am I. But this is what the grace of God is going to do in every heart who's willing. We're going to be so changed from this old way of wielding power, from being among the disciples saying, who's going to be the greatest from self-promotion and tearing each other down? We're going to be so changed on the inside that God's going to use you to reign over the universe. Luke 12, 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Oh, this is, this is mind-blowing to me. Why me? Why us? I don't get it. It's only as we come to reflect the character of Christ, where we take selfishness and it becomes love through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Self-promotion is changed to humility. Coercion is changed for attraction in our methods of dealing with people. Instead of trying to control people, we use freedom. Instead of force, we use meekness. And Jesus said the meekness will inherit the earth. And in Revelation 21, what does the earth become? The new Jerusalem comes down and God dwells here and he rules from here. In Isaiah chapter 65, it says all flesh is coming here to worship God throughout eternity. Here on planet earth, with you and I as a part of this government. That doesn't mean that necessarily we're literally sitting on a throne next to Jesus throughout eternity. I mean, that sounds pretty, I mean, it might get old. Apparently some kings liked it. They did it their whole lives. This is a position that God is calling you to through the power of his grace to be a reflector of his goodness throughout eternity. Look at this, sons and daughters, page 242. It says, the cross of Calvary. That's that's God who comes all the way down. He says, I love you more than my own existence, who refuses to use force or coercion to the very end and lays down his life. The cross of Calvary challenges and will finally vanquish every earthly and hellish power. All those beasts, they're going to be done away with by the self-sacrificing, non-coercive love of Jesus Christ. It is the great center of attraction. That's how God works through attraction. For on it, Christ gave up his life for the human race. He loves you more than his own existence. I can get excited about that. I don't know about you. I think my neighbors can get excited about that to know that that's what God is about. It's not that if I come to church and do the right motions, he might possibly maybe save me. There's so much more than that. This sacrifice was offered for the purpose of restoring man to his original perfection. Yay, more. And she goes on to talk about the transformation of character from selfishness to love. And then this, catch this. Those who in the strength of Christ overcome the great enemy of God and man will occupy a position in the heavenly courts above angels who have never fallen. I don't know about you, but when I read that, my mind was blown. And I'm realizing as I study through Scripture that this is the reality revealed in Scripture that we were for a little while, Paul says, created lower than the angels, but your purpose is even to be in a position in heaven over angels. Think about what heaven is like. You've got these incredibly fiery creatures veiling their faces in the presence of God, constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. You've got hundreds of millions of angels around God. You have this vast universe. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he created worlds and all of that, and he's calling you to be a part of the top of his government throughout eternity. You have a high calling to look to Jesus for him to accomplish in your hearts. I encourage you. There's a, a book that was just published by Light Bearers called Closer Than Angels. It's just a, a tiny little booklet, actually. Um, it's also a series on YouTube, Closer Than Angels. And it goes through just three parts, inheritance, enthronement, and marriage. I encourage you to check it out because it gets further into the biblical uh, picture of what I'm just grazing the top of right now. But it is incredibly beautiful. And you can also get it on Amazon Kindle, uh, Closer Than Angels. So King George, this guy who had all these accusations leveled against him, he has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. The Declaration of Independence is why we celebrate our freedom, because we were willing to recognize that we didn't want that kind of a ruler. And here's the fascinating thing. 
the Revolutionary War went on. Does anybody know who's standing at the helm of that ship? They're crossing the Delaware. George Washington, the commander-in-chief, led this tiny little army through many incredible things to defeat this massive army of the British Empire. And then, something incredible happened. When the war was won, they had to decide. Now who's going to be our leader? We got rid of this, this guy. He's out of the picture. Now what? Now what do we do? Who's the obvious choice? George Washington. Now notice what George III, the King of England, who you might say would have been like the arch nemesis of George Washington. Notice what he says about the action that George Washington took. Speaking of George Washington, talking to an American painter by the name of Benjamin West, he told him that that act places him, George Washington, in a light the most distinguished of any man living, the greatest character of the age. What was it? What was it that created this admiration in the heart of this monarch who ruled with absolute power over this kingdom his, his whole life? It was simply this. George Washington, many were expecting him to be some sort of ruler. Many wanted him to become the king of these United States of America. They were used to a king. Now they had a good guy to put as king. Give him the absolute power. But instead... He resigned. He stepped down from being commander-in-chief. He went back to his home in Mount Vernon and went back to being a regular citizen. That is what led the King of England to say, this guy has got the greatest character of the age. This guy is one of the greatest men in the world. He stepped down rather than grasping to go up. Well, history tells us something that happened. You know what happened just six years later is that the United States decided that they needed to elect a president. And when they went to elect a president of the the vote that was taken, it was the first election and it was unanimous for George Washington to be the president. And he said, well, the people have called, and he served as president. He was going to resign after one term, but they convinced him, you've got to keep us going for at least four more years. And so he ran again. And again, it was unanimous. The only president who's ever had unanimous election, and he had it twice, was the one who was willing to step down. The one who wasn't grasping for authority, who wasn't self-promoting, who wasn't trying to coerce and force and control others. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, gives us just this little glimmer of why God is going to seat us with Christ. It says, And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the mind of God, you're already there on the throne when you accept Jesus. Because there is a human being with hemoglobin, with lungs that are breathing, a a human flesh and bones is on the throne of the universe and you, when you accept Christ, are sitting there with him. Made us sit together in heavenly places. But here's the amazing thing. Here's why. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. We can't walk out of here patting ourselves on the back saying, Woohoo, we're going to reign the universe. We are amazing. This is about the kindness of God, the grace of God that goes to the lowest depths and picks up the rebels and says, I'm going down there. I'm becoming one of them, their brother in human flesh, and and I'm going to exalt them, and I'm even going to put them above even the angels. I'm going to sit them on my throne for all of eternity. And the universe was going to be watching saying, Wow, this God is better than we ever realized, and they're going to worship him forever. And ever, and ever, because he's just that good. Now, you might think about the angels. What are they going to think about this? I mean, does that thought cross your mind like it crosses mine? Huh? Angels, like, he, I, I know what those guys are like. Wait a second, I served them for so long, and now you're going to let them go? I don't think so. That just shows you that <laughs> my natural state of thinking is self-promotion, coercion, force, Who's going to be the greatest is my thought pattern. It's our thought pattern. It's the human thought pattern. But that's not how angels think. In Hebrews, it tells us that they are ministering spirits seeking the salvation of you and me. In the Gospels, Jesus says that each and every child has an angel who's constantly beholding the face of the Father. They're working day in and day out tirelessly for you. And when you sit on the throne, it's going to be your time, your turn. It's going to be my turn to serve the universe throughout eternity because Jesus said that even the Son of Man has did not come to be served, but to serve. To sit on the throne in the heavenly universe is not to have everybody serve you, but to be representatives of the kindness and goodness of God throughout eternity, to, to put it on display in flesh and blood. Desire of Ages, page 21, puts it this way. The angels of glory find their joy in giving, giving love and tireless watch care to souls that are fallen and unholy. Heavenly beings woo the hearts of men. By gentle and patient ministry, they move upon the human spirit to bring the lost, get this, to bring the lost into a fellowship with Christ, which is even closer than they themselves can know. He's the son of man. You have the privilege of coming closer to God than even the angels who've been in his presence in heaven. What an incredible calling we have. But friends, it's not the reward that matters most. Think about it like this. I one day was standing at the front of a church really, really excited. In fact, in just a few minutes... Tears were streaming down my eyes. They were streaming down my parents' eyes, I think. I wasn't looking at them. I was focused on those doors opening in the back of the church. And as those doors opened, there she came. My bride. My bride was coming down the aisle. Did you know that Revelation says that the bride has made herself ready? That, that the church is the bride of Christ? And our righteous actions, our loving actions and becoming, letting his kingdom become a part of us is our robes, our wedding robes that we wear. She came down that aisle and we got to get married and this is the only throne I think I've ever been able to enable her to sit on. 
But we're one. Every chair I have is her chair now. (laughs) My refrigerator is her refrigerator. We share the same house. We're together forever. And God uses this picture to give us an understanding that, that you and I are to be united with God more closely than the entire universe. And so you see, it is love that drives us. It is love that compels us. It's love that attracts us. And who is it that marries a king anyway? When you marry a king, what do you become? A queen. What do queens sit on? Thrones. They have access. They have the opportunity. They have dominion. They have it, not because they were coveting that, we hope, but because they loved the king. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, that's, that's broad, wide open. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I want him to be friends with the human race, more close friends than, than you can possibly imagine. To him who overcomes, it continues, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's a simple invitation today. He's standing at the door knocking. Do you want this? Do you want this love relationship with the king? Do you want to accept the son of man? Do you want for his government to be the way that you operate in your marriage? No force, control, self-promotion with your children, with your neighbors, with the people at work, with your enemies, no longer operating upon the principles of a fallen system that will soon implode. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you to stand as I close in prayer. Jesus, we're standing Because we recognize a love that is fathomless. A love that is so beautiful that it blows our minds. We're going to continue grappling and trying to understand it throughout eternity. But Father, may we bask in it a little bit more deeply today than ever before. And Father, may it cause this world to grow strangely dim. Not the people. May we value people more than ever because we want for your kingdom principles to be in us. But may we recognize that self-promotion and power on this planet is so worthless compared to the eternal weight of glory. Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit. Would you lead us to love like you love? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.